Hello and welcome to the Lancet Psychiatry Podcast. I'm Niall Boyce, the editor of the Lancet Psychiatry, and I'm joined today by Sarah Cheney, who's the author of Psyche on the Skin, A History of Self-Harm. We're going to discuss Sarah's book in a moment, but before that, let's hear a short reading from it. Sarah. In the summer of 1875, Mrs. Helen Miller, a 30-year-old intelligent German Jewess, was transferred from Sing Sing Prison to the New York State Asylum for Insane Criminals, after she, in her own words, began to cut up. Mrs. Miller had been sentenced to five years in prison for grand larceny, just a few months after she was last discharged from the asylum. According to the physician's report, the patient's actions were due to her being anxious to be transferred to the asylum. However, once admitted, she continued to injure herself over the next few years, usually by cutting her arms with pieces of glass. Helen Millen's behaviour was considered unusual, not least due to her chosen method of self-injury. As her physician, Walter Channing, noted, self-cutting was rarely described in articles in British or American journals. Instead, burning, scalding, hair-plucking and castration were the favourite methods. So what was the explanation for Helen's strange behaviour? The patient's age, her sex, her frequent episodes of unexplained medical symptoms, including choking and painful menstruation, and a past indicative of kleptomania, all suggested a diagnosis of hysteria. Helen's acts were not suicidal, her doctor declared. Instead, they were acts of simulation, intended, it was thought, to attract attention. An often cited modern cliché of self-harm is the assumption that the practice is, is manipulative of others. In particular, this view has been associated with the diagnosis of borderline personality disorder, one symptom of which is self-inflicted injury. Those labelled with this di diagnosis may find it hard to access treatment, with their behaviour stigmatised as inherently selfish, encapsulated in the negative concept of attention-seeking. But how did the idea that inflicting damage on one's own body is manipulative of others first occur? It is not a foregone conclusion that injuring oneself will have an effect on anyone else. Although some of the 19th century literature on self-mutilation did assume that these behaviours had selfish motives, much did not, and this was still less the case in the prehistory of self-harm. The connection between self-inflicted injury and manipulative behaviour was constructed within late 19th century psychiatry, entangled in a variety of other social and political concerns. At the end of the 20th century, it gained many associations that have remained a part of later models of self-harm. Most of these were transferred from the diagnosis of hysteria. Thank you, Sarah. So I could happily go on with you reading that book, but uh, I think we need to have a discussion about it as well. So uh, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about how this project started. So the um, book project came out of my PhD thesis and actually one of the first um, points when I became interested in the topic, um, I've been researching various areas of um, history of medicine and psychiatry in particular and I was reading uh, some of the uh, admission and patient case records of the Bethlehem Royal Hospital in the uh, 1850s and I suppose I'd grown up with one of the assumptions that I'd often seen repeated elsewhere that uh, the idea that there was any kind of distinction between suicidal and other kinds of self-injuring behaviour was a very modern idea. And then um, in these Bethlehem records uh, in the 1840s and 1850s, one of the questions asked on admission was, is the patient inclined towards suicide or otherwise to self-injury? Um, and the fact that they'd pointed to these two things as being uh, linked but essentially having some sort of distinction between them, that surprised me um, and I thought that this was an area that deserved much more um, research. Uh, and as I came to 
again reading things in um, uh, psychological and psychiatric works more, um, more recently, a lot of them would tend to say nobody really thought about uh, self-inflicted injury uh, up until Carl Manninger in the 1930s and not many people since. It's a very modern thing. But actually, there's a lot more attention has been paid than most people assume. So when did people start thinking about self-harm in what we might call the modern sense? Well, that's very much um, a Victorian concern. Um, so I suppose this came very much as a part of the development of psychiatry as a profession um, because most of the people that um, I encountered writing on this topic uh, in the 19th century tended to be asylum psychiatrists. And it was really in the 1870s and 1880s that they started grouping together certain types of behaviours. So, of course, people had injured themselves in a variety of ways, going back centuries and centuries, and, and, and some of those I do look at in my book. But it wasn't until the 1870s and 1880s um, that anyone considered there was somehow a connection between these things. And um, on the face of it, that's not an obvious thing to assume. Why should somebody pulling out their own hair be somehow the same in some way as somebody trying to cut off their hands. There's not an obvious link between those behaviours. That's a, that's a good point, which, which we'll return to. But, uh, of course, you're talking about the point where The Lancet was really getting going as, as a medical journal, started in 1823, uh, was always interested in, in new ideas. So, presumably, uh, the journal published in this area. Um, yeah, there were certainly uh, there were certainly some um, articles uh, from the Lancet. One of the things that you see the Lancet getting heavily involved in in the 1880s um, is a discussion around a case that was widely reported in newspapers. And this was a young uh, stonemason and farmer called Isaac Brooks. And uh, in 1881, uh, Brooks died. Um, and the, in 1882, it was discovered that uh, he had apparently attempted to castrate himself and then he'd accused other people of doing so and they'd, uh, they'd been put in prison. Uh, but just before he died, he'd signed a confession stating that these injuries were self-inflicted. And it was very much the Lancet that picked this up in a kind of medical sense to try and uh, create a commentary and uh, understand Brooks's actions, although these initially came from newspaper reports and Brooks's doctor actually wrote a letter to the Lancet and to the British Medical Journal trying to explain the case um, but there was all sorts of speculation and the Lancet uh, I have to say was actually one of the worst for this speculation making wild claims such as uh, there are countless cases of um, men and young boys who have tried to perform this procedure on themselves although they never really um, provided any of the evidence for this claim and I'm not sure that it was actually there. I think this was a widely held view by a lot of late Victorian doctors that, or fear that there was this kind of castration mania happening. Um, and that's, that's hit on another of the big problems with psychiatry. Perhaps of medicine in general, but psychiatry seems specifically to have this, this, this issue quite strongly, which is firstly, as you were saying, the tendency to spot patterns and to draw things together which uh, aren't necessarily so. And then the other tendency is to find what we're looking for, uh, which, which, which comes from the first, which is to superimpose a pattern on the world and, and to sort of exclude everything that's outside that and maybe see more significance uh, than is necessary in what is in that category. Uh, is that something that you found through your research into the history of self-harm? 
Yeah, that's um, that's definitely a part of it for uh, uh, for some of the in some of the cases. I mean, one one point that I would like to make um, is that one of the assumptions I came to um, or I started with when I was beginning the research is um, that oh, this is probably Victorian doctors typically going out and um, imposing all these categories on on the uh, people around them, um, and in order to prove the kind of prevailing doctrine of medical materialism that everything's about biology and heredity um, which was one of the the major views at that time and actually I found to my surprise that it was completely the opposite uh, the people who were writing on self-inflicted injury tended to contradict those views and they tended to be people who were looking for some sort of other explanation usually psychological or environmental uh, and then those actually formed part of their generalizations so actually the generalizations themselves and the groupings together of um, of acts and uh, symptoms are rather were rather more complicated than i'd initially assumed but then you also you also come across things like uh carl menger uh, for example who massively expanded in the 1930s in his book man against himself he kind of grouped together anything and everything that could possibly be considered as destructive in any way um, and he included things like self self inflicted behaviors such as nail biting very kind of minor behaviors, but also things like purposive accidents, as he put it um, and this wasn 't uh, somebody knowingly causing them or being obviously reckless. Uh, this was any case of somebody allowing themselves to be distracted, say while driving a car, uh, then they must have some desire towards death, and this came very much out of. Uh, his um, commitment to the Freudian um, concern of the, the death instinct was this overriding instinct in mankind. So, but though I think when when one takes a historical approach, you can kind of look at people like Menninger rather more kindly, I think, uh, because when you first read his um, some of his theories, they sound a bit ludicrous to a modern view. But actually, when you put it in the context of his era, um, he was writing in the run-up to the Second World War, um, in a, a society that's still very marked by the First World War. And so seeing this kind of overriding urge towards destruction and conflict in mankind, uh, that was actually something that he very much feared and wanted to do something about. Uh, so he also, at the same time, was giving a number of talks and writing papers on the comparisons between suicide and war. So as he puts it, what suicide is for the individual, so war is for the nation. So it was very much a kind of anti-war sort of polemic as well. It's, it's interesting that uh, you say that because the... and also that you cited that earlier Lancet case, which was based around self-harm by a man, because um, I, I was wondering if maybe what you found is any particular gendering of the interpretation of self-harm clinically and culturally? Not, not necessarily early on. So in all the early definitions um, uh, in the Victorian era, it's, there's not very much attention paid towards gender in particular. There's a lot of interest in acts of castration and genital self-injury, which is generally emphasised as being male, even though when you look at the cases, there's probably as many cases in asylum records of women injuring their genitals as men, but um, psychiatrists weren't so concerned about those. But... It was really kind of towards the very end of the 19th century into the early 20th uh, that this starts to be the case. So the Helen Miller example um, that I read out at the beginning of this chapter, that's one of the very early instances where a very definite connection between 
self-harm uh, and hysteria is made. And it's really this connection that leads to a gendering of self-harm as being, as being quite a female behaviour. Um, but that doesn't really gain in popularity until the early 20th century, when for a lot of doctors and probably often uh, practitioners outside of the realms of psychiatry, so that you see a lot of dermatologists getting uh, involved in this, uh, where they encounter patients with mysterious skin conditions, they can't find the source of this condition, uh, then they decide that the patient uh, is, uh, has hysteria or is hysterical. Um, and, uh, and this is connected to a whole uh, range of uh, quite uh, negatively assumed uh, personality traits which for some doctors were seen as kind of indicative of the psychology of women. Uh, so we kind of move from self-harm as being a, seen as a symptom of hysteria or evidence of hysteria to somehow being seen as proof by some doctors that women are naturally manipulative. So the, the link with hysteria um, is associated with the claim that hysterical patients injure themselves in order to gain attention. And then by the early 20th century, this uh, is put into an evolutionary context. Uh, so, so some doctors claim that uh, one in particular, Frederick Parks Weber, um, he wrote uh, extensively about the psychological characteristics of men and women. Um, and as he puts it, women are physically weaker than men. And so therefore they have evolved uh, to become more manipulative because this is the only way that they can protect themselves against the potential cruelty of men. Um, so therefore, he claims in the present day, most women are more deceitful and manipulative than are men. And this is proven by the fact that women injure themselves. And this is, this is an interesting point because I think when we talk about self-harm uh, and that these terms such as manipulative and attention-seeking come up, so much of the time the focus is not actually on the person uh, who is engaging in self-harm, but it's about the emotions and the feelings elicited in the observer. And those sometimes seem to become confused. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And that's actually one of the, one of the key things that I think comes up time and again through the different historical periods in my book, that actually the history of self-harm often tells us much more about the attitudes and ideas of people observing or encountering or witnessing acts of self-harm and far less about people who are actually injuring themselves. Uh, it's a lot more about these, these assumptions, uh, sometimes immediate assumptions or emotions about a behaviour, sometimes trying to piece them together in a pattern, but rather less about the people themselves. I was interested at uh, the launch of, of your book um, at the Royal College of Nursing when uh, one of the questions from the audience was to the effect of why do we do history of, of psychiatry, history of medicine? And the, the question seemed to be implying it was to show what silly things we used to believe in the past and how we're, we're enlightened and objective now, which uh, I didn't think is quite the point of history or of <laughs> medical history. Um, but, but it was interesting to hear that because it, it struck me that that's a fairly common view, that we advance into enlightenment and understanding. And that process which you describe in your book over the last 100, 150 years, uh, do you think this is the beginning of better understanding or is it just a, a different and, and perhaps skewed type of understanding? I would incline towards the, the latter. It's a different kind of understanding and not necessarily a better one. Um, and uh, I... I We've also encountered that view a number of times that the idea that history is this kind of progress towards towards enlightenment. Um, but actually, when you 
uh, in many instances, but particularly in this case, what happens when you look at um, self-injury historically is that you can very much see in a particular era that every element of the of attitudes towards self-harm are shaped by what else is going on around it. And I think it's actually easier to view that uh, historically than perhaps it is to recognise it in our own culture because we, uh, some of the attitudes and beliefs and ideas that we've grown up with almost seem common sense. They seem so obvious that we don't even seek to question them. Um, I suppose one overriding thing that kind of started with uh, the introduction of a category of self-injury is that there shouldn't necessarily be any link between these behaviours at all. Um, and that's always been assumed since. So questioning that, I think, is um, can be very valid. Uh, but then also it's recognising things like where these assumptions about uh, attention-seeking and manipulative behaviour come from that can still be very prevalent today. Um, but actually, we no longer really notice where they've come from, that people, they've been um, around for so long that people don't necessarily even think about how these have emerged. Uh, but when you look at the early 20th century, when these things are being said much more explicitly and um, in what can sometimes seem quite ludicrous ways to us, actually, it's much easier to acknowledge how these are still colouring the, the views that we have today. So learning to contextualise our beliefs and question our assumptions are very important lessons uh, which we can learn from the history of psychiatry and indeed from the history of self-harm as uh, set out in your book Psyche on the Skin, uh, which is available now from Reaction Books and it's well worth a read. Uh, but for now, thanks to you, the listener, for downloading this edition of the Lancet Psychiatry podcast. I hope you'll join us again next time. And thanks again, Sarah Cheney.